afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rocks Science Radio Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, fast ice cream, hunger and knowledge, and farting farms. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Frederick Zugaby, who will talk about forensic pathology. Also, we'll find out what the Amorphophallus titanum is. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, right here on Berkeley Grokks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? Uh, a little chilly, actually. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, you know, it gets blustery in November here, so... <laughs> yeah. What are you going to do? Especially on uh, other parts of the country, I guess. Yeah, everywhere in the country. <laughs> <laughs> chilly. Ama- it's amazing how the sun can do that, really. Yeah, I guess the uh, sun starts to give off the cool beam sometime <laughs> in the fall, huh? Well, you know, it shuts down for the winter. I think that's the way it works, <laughs> if I remember my astrophysics correctly. And the Earth's on a bunch of uh, elephants, I think. Right, right. Riding on a giant turtle. <laughs> Which is stopping on a rabbit. Right. <laughs> so well, speaking of chilling, you know how fast it takes to make ice cream? Well, I'd imagine it's take as quickly as the ice that you're freezing it in. It actually takes a while for the coolness to diffuse into the cream unless you're mixing it with some other uh, components like ice or, uh, in this case, the world record has been made with liquid nitrogen. Oh, really? Yes. So the world record now is 18.78 seconds to freeze a liter of ice cream. And uh, this was uh, done by a polymer physicist, uh, Peter Barnum, at England's University of Bristol. But he theorizes if he could optimize the mixing, he could get down to as little as 4.2 seconds. 4.2 seconds? Yeah. Well, you know, I need my ice cream now so <laughs> it should have been done one second ago <laughs> so uh he unofficially claims to have had a nine second record but so far the official one is 18.7 which goes to show you i guess how fast ice cream can be made now it's truly amazing and i are they thinking this will actually have some sort of industrial application for making ice cream or is it just proof of concept uh, proof kind of? of concept i guess okay but you know all fun things become a commodity at some point right <laughs> So, uh, Barnes, she wrote a book recently called Kitchen Chemistry, uh, which was distributed in the UK, features a number of topics along the lines of the chemistry of cooking, including uh, flavors, enzymes, jellies, and of course, ice cream. Get some liquid nitrogen in your uh, kitchen and you're ready to go. Yeah. If you want to check out, unfortunately, you have to go all the way to the UK. Copies of uh, Kitchen Chemistry uh, will be around schools and colleges there. You must be very hungry after hearing about all that ice cream. I live off ice cream. (laughs) I think it runs in my arteries. Uh, Who needs hemoglobin? Yeah. It's overrated. So, (laughs) well, it turns out that uh, your hunger is actually controlled by a number of things, but one of them is a chemical called leptin. Okay, isn't that an enzyme or something? Yeah, it actually is a hormone that regulates appetite, and apparently it may also influence memory formation, according to some new research. Uh, It must be that hunger for knowledge, huh? (laughs) (laughs) To say the least. Actually, my hunger just consumes me. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm still like on the uh, first level of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, so... (laughs) I'm still working on the whole breathing thing. But anyway, (laughs) 
So it turns out, though, that uh, researchers have actually found out that leptin in small amounts can actually improve your ability to remember things. So the hungrier you are, the more leptin you have or less? So actually, uh, as your uh, fat tissue produces more leptin, it actually reduces your desire to eat. Which is a little bit ironic because here in the U.S. it seems like the bigger you are, the more you want to eat and it becomes a vicious cycle for some reason. Yeah, well, it's actually thought that uh, people become desensitized to the effects of the leptin and so they wind up producing more leptin. And so their off-cue basically is becoming less effective. Stop the cycle. (laughs) (laughs) Well, apparently this desensitization might be bad because even though small levels of leptin might improve your memory, Mm -hmm. it, it turns out very large levels of leptin actually will decrease your memory abilities. Wow. I wonder what the withdrawal symptoms are. (laughs) I guess you'd forget, even if you found out. (laughs) So actually, this is an interesting study. It was done by uh, Matthew Weiner, who's a biologist at the University of Texas at San Antonio. And what he did was basically tested rats by injecting various amounts of leptin into their brains, Mm -hmm. particularly the part of the brain called the hippocampus, Uh which is involved in memory storage. And what he found, of course, was this curve, where at first your memory improves, but then as you get higher concentrations, it declines. Wow. So interesting stuff to know and might be uh, another reason to go on that diet. (laughs) Or eat that apple. (laughs) True enough. It was very fascinating work and was published in a recent edition of Peptides. Mm -mm Mm-mm-mm. So do you like to breathe in gaseous hydrogen? Uh, I think I'm doing it daily, aren't I? (laughs) Isn't it some small fraction of the air? Depends which part of the country you're in. (laughs) One of the holy grails, so-called new energy economy, where we're trying to get hydrogen storage, is how do we store this hydrogen? Apparently that's a huge problem, since for now it takes a whole whole lot of energy to chill the hydrogen and liquefy it and store it somewhere safely. Mm -hmm. Turns out now graphite, the stuff that you have in your pencils, may actually be one of the uh, best materials for storing hydrogen. Really? So basically you would bonds to the graphite in some manner. and then Some sort of absorption mechanism. Right. But it's better than a lot of the so-called nanotubes that's appearing since basically you can have sheets and you create a material such as the graphite sheet are spaced at a specific distance from each other so that only the hydrogen will come in and get absorbed as opposed to a whole of other junk molecules like, say, nitrogen or oxygen. Mm. Physicists in the U.S. and the Germany have investigated this and they feel that with a little bit more research done with fine-tuning distance between uh, graphite sheets, they could come with a cheap, inexpensive, and non-toxic material for storing your hydrogen fuel. So it's not just good for writing. Maybe one day uh, you can power everything with just your pencil. (laughs) This is interesting stuff published in our favorite journal. Oh, really? Yes. Proceedings? Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. All right, and finally, it's an issue for ozone. You mean it's not for guys? Uh, not that ozone. Oh. <laughs> Although I thought guys can get into that ozone as well. Mm. Uh, no, this is actually having to do with trying to figure out how much nitrogen oxide compounds farmlands produce. Is this the same nitrogen oxide compounds that mediating certain physiological functions? No, no, it's actually nitrogen dioxide. Oh, okay. And this is uh, known actually to produce ozone in the lower atmosphere. Okay, and it's also a pollutant, I guess. Right, right. And it's actually, I mean, most of the nitrogen dioxide that's released is actually from industrial sources. Okay. But uh, researchers have been wondering what the fraction was contributed from farmlands. Right. Because bacteria 
when they're uh, fertilized, they'll produce a lot of nitrogen dioxide. Right. And it turns out in a recent study that was done by collecting data from the Global Ozone Monitoring Experiment, the GOM, as they call it, <laughs> researchers uh, found out basically that the amount of ozone that was emitted was approximately 8.0 million tons of nitrogen in the form of nitrogen oxides, which is equivalent to 22% of the Earth's total surface emissions. Wow, that's a lot. Yeah, so it's actually quite a bit more than they thought it was. Almost a quarter of mm-hmm. the emissions come from farmland. Yeah, I'm not sure if you've seen this, but if you go down to Highway 5 in California, it turns out the Central Valley is like one of the most polluted places in the world. I think because they're saying that all the farmlands produce all these NOx emissions and eventually um, nuclei create these brown smog. And so, uh, you know, with the valley and all that, it gets stuck there. And it turns out it's much more polluted than a lot of industrial places. Yeah. Just from the farmland. Well, it's, I guess it's not surprising. Yeah, I, I guess one way to know that how dirty it is, like if you look at the moon setting and how orange it is, that orangeness is also indicative of the uh, NOx. It's not just a pretty uh, moon in the uh, uh, horizon. True enough, yeah. It does show that this sort of source for uh, nitrogen oxides needs to be looked at and perhaps addressed in terms of trying to reduce global uh, ozone levels. This what is they, the bad ozone that's yeah. down near the Earth, not yes. the one up there. Right, right. So it's, it's very fascinating work, and it was uh, published in the recent edition of Faraday Discussions. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, coming up next, Dr. Frederick Zugaby will join us to discuss forensic pathology. So stay tuned. show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, the saying goes that there are only two certainties in life, death and taxes. And while some of us might be able to avoid the latter, death is certainly the one certainty. But what happens when someone is murdered? How does society restore the balance and punish the guilty? How are guilty parties even identified? Well, that's the job of the forensic pathologist and his arsenal of scientific investigating tools. And joining us today to discuss some of the science of forensic pathology is Dr. Frederick Zugaby. Dr. Zugaby is the former chief medical examiner of Rockland County in New York and remains one of the nation's most respected forensic experts. He has written numerous articles on the subject for publications like The New York Times, The Village Voice, and Harper's. And his new book, Dissecting Death, explores the inner world of the forensic pathologist. Uh, Dr. Zugaby, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. It's my pleasure. Uh, well, it's certainly a pleasure to have uh, you on the program, and you've written a very uh, interesting book here, Dissecting Death, where you illustrate a lot of the interesting cases that you encountered as a forensic pathologist. But I think this is an area that a lot of people might find a little bit gruesome, and I, I think a lot of people might be interested in uh, what's, what's a typical day like for you as a forensic pathologist? Today's are very, very variable. Some days we might not get a single call. Other days we may start out in the morning and have call after call, and then as you're dead tired and you go to bed at night, then you start getting some calls all through the night. So you just never know from day to day. You keep your fingers crossed. Do you find it difficult uh, being woken up in the middle of the night, having to go to a crime scene? And... Oh, you, you actually n- never 
but you never really, truly get used to getting up. Once I'm up, I'm been raring to go, and when I get back, it's hard to fall asleep again. <laughs> well, I can imagine after seeing some of the things that you've at least described in uh, in your book here. <laughs> mm. uh, I'm curious, so what, what is the most interesting and, uh, and compelling part of your job? Well, the most interesting uh, part of it is when evaluating a particular case. There's been uh, many types of cases where an individual is uh, suddenly convicted of a death. But like having, a, uh, to give you an example, a person falls over dead in a, in a bar, and an individual had just pushed him just lightly across the shoulder, and they bring the guy in for murder. We open the body up, and we find out that the individual had a congenital aneurysm of the brain. This immediately, which is ready to uh, to burst, any kind of a increased excitement or physical activity, the uh, vessel breaks, and so we're able to get an individual off right away. They take the individual in, charge him with murder. Yeah, it's interesting. I think most people would think of a forensic pathologist as trying to convict a person, but in many cases you can actually get them off. Oh, absolutely. In fact, there's been many, many type of cases like that where oh, I, can, I can think of even a recent case where a 15-year-old boy charged with murder and two individuals, 20-some-year-old individuals, had said he was the one who shot this fellow in the back. Well, when I reconstructed the case according to their story, it was totally impossible for that young uh, boy to have caused that. And through more a definitive investigation, and we found out it was really one of the two individuals that were in her 20s that really did it, figured the 15-year-old being so young wouldn't get much of a rap, so they went ahead and accused the kid when the kid said, no, I really never did it. Both of the other fellows said, oh, yes, he did. But my reconstruction showed that he couldn't possibly have done it. The angle was completely incorrect. So we were able to get him off. So, you know, there's a lot of nice feelings at times when you're able to do that. I'm curious, I guess, when you when you go to a crime scene, you, you actually outline this very uh, thoroughly in your book. What what sort of process do you go through in terms of looking at the crime scene? And well, First of all, you have to make sure, if you want to have a good system, you really have to have a good relationship with the police departments, first of all, that have confidence in you, have confidence in your ability, and so forth and so on, so that when you send a, a notice over, look, on any suspected homicide at all, I don't want anybody in the scene. I want the scene kept pristine. There, I wanted Waldorf and nobody in until I give the word after I come to the scene, examine the body, and then we'll take it from there. Because if, if you want the best evidence and so forth and so on for your case, you can't do anything that could possibly make it so that uh, you people would be suspicious yourself. Mm -hmm. I, I see, and, and you also say that you have to sort of preserve the body in the, the state that it's in and uh, make sure that you get all the established yeah. time of death and things like that. You know, it's funny, but in the early days when I first became a medical examiner about 30-some years uh, ago, I went to a scene, I couldn't get over the fact of think that I was seeing evidence, and it was not really evidence. It was a cigarette of a, one of the police officers, mm. or a police officer sits on a chair, goofs up the scene during that particular time. The photographs that were taken then, because the chair was moved, when they got up, they moved the chair, <laughs> and absolutely no concept of all these little things that make a big, big difference. Are, are police uh, better educated nowadays as to how to preserve a scene? 
Oh, now we, we've developed in, in our county totally great relationship with the police departments, giving lectures to them concerning protocols of the best way to, and we are, our, our great teamwork comes in. They won't touch anything. They depend on us. Then the medical examiner is in charge of that scene, that murder scene, until I give it up. Then as soon as I finish and I get my photographs and everything else and my initial examination, then I turn it over to them. But you see, you don't have a homicide, you don't have an accidental death, you don't have until the medical examiner makes that decision. Gentlemen, you have a homicide here. Mm. Gentlemen, this is not a homicide, this is an accidental death. Mm. You see, that bullet hole could be accidental, could be suicide, could be homicide, and the medical examiner makes a determination and says, now I have to establish the corpus delecti, I've established it now, you have this case, now it's your case, and they then investigate. Hmm. Certainly this is not standard across the country. I mean, in your book, you actually talk about a lot of the higher-profile cases that maybe might have been botched a little bit. No, look, take example, take example the Jean Benet Ramsey case. Mm-hmm. Now, I was on TV, I think it was MSNBC, when some of the authorities from Colorado were on at the same time there. Well, well the whole point is that uh, it was about noon when the police were called, and the police called the medical examiner. The medical examiner came to the scene. He was not allowed in because they were waiting for a search warrant, hmm. and they finally got a search warrant several hours later, and then the medical examiner went in. He only spent 15 minutes at the scene. I mean, items like this. So it's completely uh, terrible if something like that occurred in our jurisdiction. I think everybody would have uh, took a total uh, convulsion. But uh, these things happen. In my book, I had to, in my last chapter, make a few comments about a few cases, like the Simpson case, how it was handled, the errors and all that they did, uh, the prosecution did in their investigations, and also the Jean Benet Ramsey and so forth, to show where the errors are. Now, the early errors are very difficult to erase. Uh, indeed. Actually, uh, in regard to the Simpson case, you actually mentioned that, in fact, a lot of the error was in how the forensic evidence is even presented in the court. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, one of the, you take, for instance, in the Simpson case, the whole point is that it was very important, for instance, to get across to the jury that the DNA evidence showed Simpson's DNA, even though they had brought up, the other side had brought up the fact that the police did not take the sample correctly. They put it in a, in a plastic bag instead of a paper bag. You know, it was very hot. They didn't keep it cool and so forth and so on. And all of those things are right. They, they should have done all of those things. But since the test came out as positive for Simpson, the DNA was Simpson's DNA profile, it couldn't be anybody else, uh, even though they made all those mistakes. And that was never brought up to the jury, because after the case was over, jurors would be interviewed. They'd say, oh, I didn't understand all that DNA stuff, so I just forgot about it, you see. And then when they put on the gloves, the Reese Toner <laughs> gloves there, to hear they have got gloves that had been saturated with blood and dried and so forth and so on. And then they put a pair of vinyl gloves on Simpson and told him to try to put them on any struggle there to put them on. That was really dumb, pardon the expression, but it was really dumb because what they should have done there was got the exact size, new pair, let somebody wear them a bit and have them try those on. But to do that was a, really a total 
so many more aspects of it that we discussed in my book. It's certainly a very high-profile and, and botched case there. But I, I'm curious, actually, so you certainly had a very long of your career in forensics. I'm curious, what, what sort of case has stayed in your mind? What's the one that sort of pops out whenever you think about your career? Oh, which ones that popped? The Iceman murders, for instance. Mm. Uh, the Iceman uh, murders, uh, this individual in a businessman-like uh, fashion, uh, had murdered over 100 people. Hmm. And very, very bright. He would have a business deal going for some item. Well, one of his cases was dumped into my county. And here we find this individual wrapped up with plastic bags and so forth and so on. And I noted at autopsy that the outside of the body was more decomposed than the inside of the body. Mm. Gee, that's kind of very, very strange here. Mm -hmm. I call some friends that are medical examiners in other jurisdictions. No one had any type of uh, experience in that regard. And so then I recalled the fact of some of my research in freeze-drying and all, uh, that this could occur if the individual was frozen and then dumped. Mm. That would throw off the timing completely. So I looked at the heart muscle under the microscope, little sections taken, and I could see ice crystal artifacts. I was used to seeing them because when I would freeze dry tissue with liquid nitrogen and so forth, the same type would occur. And it would account for the bacteria being killed in the intestinal tract. That's why the inside of the body was not uh, decomposed as the outside of the body. And it was really uh, funny because when the case eventually was broken and I wrote up the case for publication in the forensic journals, it was really something because the detective that broke the case had a wire on when he, he was made out that he was one of this Kuklinski, the Iceman customers. <laughs> in fact, I, I named him the Iceman, was named right. after my <laughs> case. But when he broke the case, he had a wire on and he says, uh, gee, these are quite interesting cases and all. Uh, Kuklinski said, well, I had one case, for instance, that I uh, murdered. I froze for two and a half years. Mm. And they thought he was only dead a couple of days or a few days. That's what ice does. It's like taking meat out of a refrigerator. Mm. So I put that quote right at the end of my uh, article because of the fact that I, fig I had figured it all out. And I made an identification. It was hard to make the identification because his fingers were mummified. And I had developed a new technique that's used now all over the world. It's a method where I can take mummified fingers and reverse them so I can get excellent fingerprints. We were able to make the uh, identification, called the family, found out that he was missing for two and a half years, hmm. had the same clothing, on and also that's how another thing that shows it was the two and a half years that he was missing and that really made a big big mark on the case so we're running slowly out of time but i'm curious how did you move into this field of forensic pathology well you know it's funny i you know i did my master's and my phd degree in research first hmm. and in fact i was head of cardiovascular research with the veterans administration and the university of pittsburgh and i, I had worked uh, in these areas of research and I decided to go ahead and get my MD degree after publishing quite a few papers, and they made me an assistant professor while I was a medical student. Mm. I got through that. Then I decided what area of specialty was pathology would be right up my alley from work that I did before. And then I saw the challenge of forensic pathology, and so that's why I geared my, well, my future into that. At the time, I had seven children that I had to support, yeah. and at the same time of going through school and all, but 
worked out. We mm-hmm. worked as a team. The whole family did. I saw this opening as chief medical examiner of Rockland County. They had the old coroner system, and I was able to develop it in the way I wanted to. And I sort of put a research aspect onto it because of my background, my Ph.D. background. And this is the reason why I can say that of all the cases I did know, 30-some years in Rockland County, there has never been a case where the jury has ever accepted an outside expert over my testimony. And that was because of the real care. Well, we did have a small area. It's not a big, big city. Mm-hmm. We had the luxury of time mm-hmm. uh, there, and uh, which makes a big difference, too. I mean, you can't always say in oh, some of these big cities, they do make mistakes and all. They have so many more cases to do, and they don't have that luxury of mm-hmm. time. But we did, and as a consequence, we were able to develop a lot of new methods and techniques that we published that are used routinely now in forensic pathology. It really is very fascinating work. Uh, but it does look like we are slightly out of time. Dr. Sugarby, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks, talking all about forensic pathology and your book, Dissecting Death. Well, thank you uh, for having me come on. And you were just listening to Dr. Frederick Zugaby discussing forensic pathology and his book, Dissecting Death. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, coming up next, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Okay, welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, Dr. Frederick Zugaby has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000, which was a supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic natural or unnatural causes. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, if found dead, would they have died of natural or unnatural causes? So, Dr. Zuggaby, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Most Just, likely. So the first person uh, found dead is going to be Michael Jackson, natural or unnatural causes? Well, it would be, uh, it would be more likely would be natural. Uh, because uh, maybe, uh, because uh, 98% of deaths that we investigate end up to be a natural cause. Uh, number two, the old deep throat himself, F. Mark Felt. Oh, yes. Well, I, I would call it uh, suspicious. <laughs> I would call it suspicious, more likely unnatural. Okay. <laughs> Probably a lot of people have uh, a thing for him, I imagine. <laughs> uh, number three, uh, Sean Connery. I, I would say, Sean Connery, I would say more likely natural. Uh, I'm, looking, I'm thinking in terms of his age and so forth, too. Okay. Uh, number four, O.J. Simpson. Well, I would probably say uh, unnatural. 
because of the fact that he was a man that really literally got away to a large degree, he didn't get totally, but a large degree got away with murder because of, of the uh, clause of double jeopardy. You can't right. uh, try him again for the crime. But the evidence is overwhelming that he was the man who committed the murder. I mean, my, that, that's what my <laughs> answer was based on. Okay. <laughs> and finally, number five, the President of the United States, George Bush. I would say more likely suspicious, depending on the circumstances. Mm. It would still be depending on, on the circumstances of his death. Uh, age-wise and heredity-wise and all, it would be uh, rather unlikely that it would be a coronary mm-hmm. or a natural type of a cause as such. There, I would, ha- I would have to call it suspicious. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, Dr. Zogaby, I, I do want to thank you for sticking around to play our game, uh, the Grokotron 5000, and, of course, talking all about the uh, fascinating field of forensic pathology. It was really my pleasure, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, it was our pleasure. Okay, and now here's the Tokyo Kid with the answer to last week's question of the week. What is the Amorphophallus titanum? Ah, so the Amorphos means shapeless, Phallus means the penis, and the titanum means very large. So the Amorphophallus titanum is the very large shapeless penis. It is also the largest flower species in the world and it's also known as the corpse plant because it smells like a dead body when it uh, blooms and that is what this uh, flower is. Alright then, that's really great there Tokyo Kid. Right, I'll tell you what there Tokyo Kid. You can keep your Amorphophallus titanium if I can have your baby. Cause I weigh a lot. I know where as much as the earth. Well if you know how much it weighs, you can email us here at grocks at hotmail.com. You're not gonna win anything. But ugh, I still ain't eating babies. And that's all for this week's edition of the Berkeley Grox Science Radio Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.